From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. If you're staying up to date with the news, you may have noticed that unions are having a moment. This summer alone, strikes by members of the WGA, UAW, SAC-AFTRA, UPS, Starbucks, Amazon, and Kaiser Permanente unions, among others, have made headlines and signaled solidarity between workers across the country. Last year, public support for unions hit a 57-year high, with 71% of Americans expressing a favorable opinion. It's being called the hot labor summer. From Hollywood to hotels, workers have been walking off the job. Work stoppages in the U.S. are reaching record highs. Researchers at Cornell University estimate nearly 362,000 workers have gone on strike in 2023. However, unions themselves are not a utopia. Here at the ACLU, we've sided both with and against unions to secure workers' rights, specifically those of women and pregnant people. There's still much work to be done to ensure that all workers are treated fairly. But one thing remains clear. Unions can be a powerful force for securing civil rights and civil liberties. Journalist Kim Kelly is a firm believer in the power of organized labor. After years of reporting on the American labor movement, she released Fight Like Hell, the untold history of American labor. The book chronicles historical labor movements across several industries, focusing on the people from marginalized groups who led them, their wins and their losses. Kim joins us today to help us connect our past to our present and deepen our understanding of the ongoing fight for workers' rights. Kim, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start by considering the moment that we're in presently. Striking and labor organizing is, of course, not new, um, but we've seen this big rise in reporting on labor unions in major media outlets with recent strikes involving auto workers, Kaiser Permanente healthcare employees, writers, actors, among others. What do you make of this moment, um, and what do you think might be behind this increase in public sentiment for unions? It's certainly an interesting and exciting time to be a labor journalist. I feel like I can barely keep up, and it's literally my job. So I can only imagine how folks reading the news are feeling every other day. As you said, there has been a lot of coverage, and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that so much of the media itself is unionized. Because going back to 2015, this is the reason I got involved in the labor movement. The place I was working at the time, Vice, we unionized. And a ton of other digital media places organized under my union, the Writers Guild of America East. And the News Guild also got involved in organizing digital media. And so there's and there's already this long tradition in uh, in newspapers and more legacy-oriented media that they're already unionized too. So a lot of the people that are telling these stories are doing this reporting. They understand unions in a way that perhaps other generations didn't, or at least they have more sympathy or empathy because they've gone through it themselves. And in digital media, so much of us get laid off all the time, myself included. That's how I ended up being a labor journalist. I spent most of my life as a heavy metal reporter. And then we unionized a vice and I I took a little pivot. 
probably the only positive pivot to come out of Vice Media in the 2020s. But I think one of the reasons we're seeing <laughs> seeing people really respond to these stories and, and are just interested and want to get involved is that they they see themselves in the workers. They are also dealing with a lot of the same issues we're seeing discussed by striking workers and by workers that are organizing, you know, inadequate wages, an untenable cost of living, burdensome healthcare costs, a lack of respect and dignity and safety on the job. That is a very familiar feeling for, I think, most people in this country who work. And especially as the pandemic has continued, we remember those earlier days when we had the essential worker discourse. We had that moment where the people who have always done this important invisible labor, whether it's the folks who clean hospitals or sanitation workers to keep the streets clean or the people that sell you the food you and your family need to live, they finally got recognized for a brief moment. And mm-hmm. I think that spark is really behind a lot of the energy we're seeing. On top of the fact that, almost coincidentally, a lot of big contracts are expiring. You know, when you're in a union, every certain number of years, your contract expires. You've got to negotiate a new one. That's what's happening with the auto workers with the big three. That's what happened in Hollywood with the Writers Guild and with SAG-AFTRA, who are still on strike. This is something that has always happened, at least as long as we've had organized labor in this country. But Now more people are paying attention and they're sympathizing, they're empathizing, and they're getting involved. And I think that's really the most exciting part. That makes a lot of sense. Nothing like a cataclysmic event that really puts all of our vulnerabilities at the forefront to make us reconsider and think, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned the pivot that you had between being a heavy metal reporter to being a labor reporter and that so much of that had come from being a member of the digital media (laughs) uh, ecosystem and enduring the tumult of that industry contracting. Um, What made you want to write book, Fight Like Hell, because not only are you a labor reporter, you've now spent a huge amount of time diving deep into labor history and really giving us quite a piece of work on this topic. (laughs) Uh, Definitely a piece of work, especially if you (laughs) ask my mother. But um, yeah, it's, well, I've always wanted to write a book, right? (laughs) I've been a writer for a long time. I I had actually been hooked up with my agent for for years before Fight Like Hell was a a glimmer in my eye, right? I initially planned to write a book about heavy metal, and then things shifted. I was going to write more more personal essay type stuff about growing up in rural working class, all of that. And I'd always been a big nerd about learning about the things I was passionate about. That's why I was so good and still am so good about writing about music because I just wanted to know everything. And when I became involved in the union effort at Vice, I, I found kind of a new favorite band in a manner of speaking. And I wanted to know everything. So I was reading as many labor books as I could and talking to our organizers and our our labor lawyers and other folks in the community. I just became so enamored with finding out everything I could about the history of this movement I was all of a sudden part of. And I think I sort of took the approach that I have towards writing about metal, which is not necessarily the most well-known, well-understood, well-appreciated genre in the world, 
even though it should be, uh, and took that, applied that towards writing about worker stories about labor, because I found so many parallels there. You know, writing about something that is incredibly important to millions of people around the world, has a rich history, is very complex, has its own subculture, its own politics, its own universe, really. And then trying to explain to people outside that orbit why it matters, why it's interesting, why it might even apply to them. Writing about black metal for the New York Times is not that different from writing about like a nurse's strike for Teen Vogue, you know? It's just getting people to understand why this, why they should care. And so when I had the opportunity to write a book, I kind of built on that approach, the approach I had taken in my Teen Vogue column, No Class, where I would dive into kind of a historical labor event and tie it to something that was happening currently to show those threads and show the way that those connections happen. And I really just took the opportunity to expand and really throw everything I had into researching this book and pulling together people and campaigns and moments from across history and trying to weave together a story that showed how many different types of people have been involved in these efforts, how this kind of one-dimensional avatar of the, the working class, of the union worker that we're fed, of the, the white guy in a hard hat like my dad, he was only one part of the story. The rest of us have always been here. And I'm not an academic. I owe so much of my own understanding and of the book's research on the work that historians and academics and archivists and so many other brilliant people have already done. I, I went in as a journalist, right? I pulled in all of these different pieces of information, these stories and these voices, and I tried to weave them together in a way that was accessible and easy to understand. And the kind of thing that got people's blood pumping that they could also read on the bus or during their or during their lunch hour, right? It's a book I wish that I had had lying around or had easy access to when I was first getting involved in our union and learning about unions at all. Because even though there are so many brilliant academic books and monographs out there about labor history, they're not lying around at Barnes & Noble. They weren't lying around in my school library. It wasn't something that I knew was out there when I was first getting involved. I wanted to make something that anybody and any person no matter their background or their identity could pick up and see themselves in and think oh maybe i could do this too i think it's never an easy task to chronicle any kind of quote-unquote untold history um which of course you confront that question you know untold to who um but there's such a large amount of information that just really gets left out of memory history so it's quite the task that you take on, and I really appreciate how accessible you make it. And I love that you note that, like, when we think in our mind's image of, like, what a union worker is, we think of uh, a white man with a hard hat. And in the book, you specifically, like, you tell a different kind of story because you bring together the stories of leaders and activists who are women and people of color and immigrants and incarcerated people and sex workers and LGBT plus people and people impacted by disability and anarchists, just such a wide array of interesting characters. And you chronicle them with categories like the miners and the revolutionaries, um, the sex workers. Why did you choose the format of that of the book um, and how does it serve to tell these stories different than just like a simple chrono chronology would if you will yeah I figured that doing a full-on chronology would 
honestly be too hard. <laughs> because there's so many different people and moments I wanted to chronicle, and so many of them overlapped, and so many of them were happening at the same time. Again, I'm not a trained historian. I don't know if I have it in me to write a full-on academic uh, style, um, just full-on chronological narrative like that. Mm. But also it didn't seem like as much fun, because when I was thinking about the types of people I wanted to involve, they kind of separated in my head into these little buckets. Like, okay, these folks are over here. These folks are part of this. And I came up with these kind of, I guess, avatars, or these these big categories that could fit a lot of different types of people, like the harvesters. So it's not just farm workers. It's a number of people in different uh different occupations, or the revolutionaries, which was people who were involved in a lot of different struggles, but ultimately were pushing back against the status quo and were out here rapping for the anarchists and the socialists and the communists who have been part of the labor movement in this country since the beginning. Or the freedom fighters, I wanted to explicitly show the ways that the American civil rights movement was intertwined with labor and how so many of those revered civil rights leaders that you know, that we remember and talk about were involved in labor. You know, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a union man, but also so was A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rustin and Rosina Tucker. So many of these people that we've heard about or read about, they also had to go to work, right? Or they were part of a union. There's three chapters I really specifically wanted to make sure I included um, they're the three at the end. They're kind of my favorites. Don't tell the other ones. Um, the disabled workers, the incarcerated workers, and the sex workers. Because those are three groups of workers that, at least in my pretty extensive reading, had not necessarily seen pulled into what we'd see as these kind of mainstream labor histories. They're, again, part of, siloed out. And, and it was also, those are the most personal ones for me because I am literally a disabled labor journalists, and I haven't come across many of these stories without really digging for them. So let's put them out there. Or and the incarcerated workers, like one of my best friends was incarcerated in Rikers during the time I was writing this book. And he's in the book as a source because he helped organize a strike during his time there. You know, and the sex workers, so many of my friends are sex workers. And I hired a friend of mine who works in that industry to basically give a sensitivity read to that chapter to make sure I wasn't screwing anything up. Because that's a population of workers that have been treated terribly by the media, by, well, everybody, really. And I just wanted to make sure, like, I have this one shot to put out this giant labor history book. Like, this is my shot. I'm going to do it the way I want. And it worked out okay. I think it worked out better than okay. Um, but, <laughs> but that's just me. Um, you know, one of the things that was notable to me and I think has been part of the intersection of like where the ACLU has met uh, labor unions is that sometimes labor unions, despite efforts, right, um, workers don't always feel that they're supported by their unions. So, you know, for example, the ACLU has been involved in cases like Bragg versus Pacific Maritime Organization, arguing on behalf of pregnant dock workers who were denied the opportunity of union membership. In your book, you bring up several situations where unions have not always supported all workers equally. Steel miners facing homophobia, women speaking out against sexual harassment at Ford assembly plants, Arab auto workers facing racial and religious discrimination. 
I want to think about these scenarios and ask you what at its best is the value of labor unions and conversely, how have some worked to take away power from workers? Like what is the other side here? It's interesting. I mean, the the most basic level, I think, a labor union, a group of workers organizing together, trying to improve their workplace, that's the strongest tool we have as working class and poor people. Really, like, in general, uh, especially in terms of impact our economic uh, prospects, our economic situation, our social and political situation, because throughout history... When we look at the types of progress we have won, the steps we have taken forward, unions have been behind that. Groups of regular workers coming together and fighting together are behind that. It's all of these rights that we have, they were not given to us by benevolent overlords. They were taken. And it is very seldom that one individual person, not impossible, but seldom that one individual person has been the force that has created that situation, right? Like we, one person is pretty tough to change the world, but a couple of people, a couple dozen people, a couple thousand people, a couple million people, now you're cooking with fire. Conversely, I, I you certainly, you will, you'll definitely never catch me um, like giving into anti-union talking points or any of the nonsense that we see parroted by anti-union, anti-worker politicians, media pundits, general Republicans. But Unions are made up of human beings, right? The labor movement is not a monolith. Labor is not a monolith. There is a wide variety of perspectives and identities and opinions throughout the movement. I mean, one of its strengths that occasionally has been used to create weakness and division is the fact that Almost every type of person is involved in labor because almost every type of person has a job. And that can be an incredible force for good. And it can also create divisions when some people find themselves feeling threatened by people that are different from them or feeling like people that are different from them are getting one over or taking their jobs. All of these these bullshit boss lines that have been fed to workers in a way to keep us apart and keep us from organizing. But some people in union leadership have very differing opinions on these political issues, and that can cause issues and division among the membership too. What do you do when your union leadership mm -hmm. is saying something that you don't believe or that you feel doesn't represent you or you feel is causing harm to you and workers like you? I mean, that's why we've seen throughout history, like the examples you mentioned, uh, like in Detroit with Black and Arab auto workers who were standing up against, at that time, UAW leadership that was white and did not care about what they were going through on the shop floor. They organized, they struck, they fought, and they changed it. You know, that is one thing about the labor movement that does give me hope. A lot of things do. But one thing that I've kind of seen with my own eyes that during my own um, tenure as an, a union official with the Writers Guild is if there's something you don't like about your union, mm. you can change it by getting involved. It takes more work. It's got to be a pain in the ass. It's got to be more meetings. You might end up on million email reply all threads from hell, but you got to put some work in. Otherwise, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And you're going to keep getting more and more disenchanted. And you're going to get less involved. You're going to care less about your union. No, no, I think that's really fair. I mean, even just the first thing you said, which is, unfortunately, unions are also still made up of people and 
people are complicated and, you know, we contain multitudes and there's every kind of person that exists within a union structure um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that is that is the reason that there are like that people can other people can get involved. And as you mentioned, um, if there's a problem in your union, you might want to start just getting deeper involved in it. That's the only way that we're going to change anything. I mean, and and something that I've definitely learned through my reporting in Appalachia and specifically with reporting on coal miners and they're organizing their strikes in the Deep South. Like that's a population of workers that a lot, not all, but a lot of them have completely dissimilar political views to me. But we love our union. We all believe that workers deserve a living wage and that kids need food and health care and that people should be safe on the job. Like there are so many places within the labor movement, within labor, that you can find common ground, right? And I think that's something that a lot of politicians drop the ball there. And a lot of people outside of labor drop the ball and realizing just the efficacy of finding those moments like, okay, well, you don't, you feel feel like this about politics. I feel like this about politics, but you hate your boss. I hate my boss too. Maybe we could talk about that and figure out the other stuff. Yeah. Something that you talk about in the book is how solidarity was often found between groups of laborers from different backgrounds. Do you find this kind of solidarity or convergence common presently? I think we've been seeing a lot more of it, especially I think post-2020 when a lot of unions finally felt like, okay, we have to say something. We have to be out here to say that Black Lives Matter. We have to actually address issues of racial injustice in the workplace and in the world. Not all, but a lot of unions started finally embracing that posture. I think, once again, not all unions are created equal, right? But there are some unions especially that I think are doing an incredible job of making those connections, whether it's Starbucks Workers United, who have been very vocal about not only labor issues, but about the issues that their queer and trans members face and their Black and brown members face. Sure, there are some unions and union leaders that just want to stick to bread and butter. They don't want to talk about all this woke progressive stuff. And they're going to suffer as a result because their leadership is not understanding that their membership is made up of human beings. Again, unions are made up of people and people are not, not Mm -hmm. everyone has the same work day, right? Like racial justice, abortion rights, trans rights, those are workers' rights because those People that are impacted by that also have to go to work. Like That's something I really wanted to show with the book is like every movement for justice, every movement for liberation, there has been a labor component because after every protest, every sit-in, every mass arrest, most of us have to go to work on Monday. Totally. I want to ask specifically about the environment that I think we're now contending with Um specifically around reproductive rights and um, access. Uh, Obviously, it's a very uh, perilous time to be a person who can become pregnant, um, a woman, a mother. Um, What do you think is the job of unions to support these workers in specific right now? Right. I mean, <laughs> say abortion, right? Don't be afraid to name what is happening. But and in in practical terms, like we were saying much earlier, union contracts expire every year, every month. There's tons of them out there. 
honestly, I think we need to see a massive push with leadership from the AFL-CIO, with leadership from every corner of the movement to ensure that every union contract from now until forever in, like, includes protections for those workers, includes resources for those workers if they need to travel, includes like a full-throated, fully-backed endorsement and understanding and commitment to protecting those workers and their autonomy and their bodies and their rights. Because that is, like, you can't pretend to care about workers if half the workforce is at risk of being used as, like, human incubators against their will in, like, half the country. Like, I don't care if if your leadership is a bunch of older dudes that are like, ooh, it's lady stuff. Fuck that. Like, (laughs) bring in different leaders or tell them to get their heads out of their asses and think about the fact that half of the population is at risk right now, is being having our rights torn away, our rights to travel, our rights to work, like, rights to work, our rights to exist as full human beings. Like, it's an existential crisis. I don't think that everyone in the movement, especially leadership, has fully understood this. I think labor is in a unique place where we have enough power and enough leverage where we can actually force some change here and protect these workers, protect us. And I I would really love to see labor stepping up on this issue. So if anyone out there is listening, let's, let's cause some trouble. I think that you're absolutely right that we need to be loud about it. So... I think there is a cohort of folks that might feel that labor unions were perhaps instrumental in our history, but are perhaps not as instrumental in our present. I'm wondering what elements of the historical labor movement that you see within our present movements and how workers can perhaps draw on the past to inform their fight in the present labor movement. I think there is so many moments throughout the really 300 400 year history of labor in this country that you see that you were seeing mirrored right this second i mean right now we're having thanks to Sean Fay and the UAW we're having a conversation around the 4 day work week you know a couple hundred years ago the conversation was for an 8 hour work day and that was led by radical labor unionists and by anarchists and by Lucy Parsons and all of these people you're not going to necessarily read about in your school history books. You know, we are seeing the fruits of true multiracial, multi-generational, multilingual, multi-gender, multi-everything type of organizing at places like Amazon and at Starbucks. And we were seeing that here in Philadelphia on the docks with Ben Fletcher in 1910 with Local 8. We saw that in 1946 during the Great Sugar Strike when workers from all over Southeast Asia and the Hawaiian Islands came together to go up against the big five sugar bosses and won. We have seen what it looks like when workers and labor organizers rally around a cause during the civil rights movement. That's happening now with the fights for racial justice and queer and trans liberation for women's rights, for abortion rights. There are so many precedents. And it is such a silly thing to me that someone might look at 
the long, wild, bloody, beautiful history of labor in this country and think, oh, well, we're we're done with that, though. Like, we got, you know, the NLRB, we got, you know, the New Deal, all this stuff in the 30s. Like, we're fine. We are not fine. And we are not finished. I mean, I keep mentioning the auto workers, so I think they're just such a fascinating case. But they just bullied Ford into like the best contract they've seen in decades by embracing this militant, multiracial, multigender, multi-everything type of organizing that we've seen work over the centuries and they're using it to win. We've seen it in uh, the grad student worker organizing that's electrifying the nation. We've seen it, it with coal miners in Alabama going out on strike. And organizing against Black Lung. Sure, technology Mm. is different. Society and the political landscape has changed. But people still aren't being paid what they're worth. They're still not being treated the way they should be. And they still have some goddamn opinions about that. And that's what the labor movement is. And that's what it's going to continue to be until we're all free. Yeah, it really strikes me that so many of the asks, a living wage, a perhaps a four-day work week, health care, um, worker, you know, safety protections on the job, just these things that are extremely basic, paid maternity leave and paternity leave, um, I don't know, FMLA, like just genuinely these kind of basic bread and butter things would actually just help Everyone. <laughs> like, it just helps everyone. Right? These things help everyone. Um, and I think one of the things that we like to talk a lot about it uh, at the ACLU, because we work on such a broad portfolio of issues, everything is interconnected. If queer people win, disabled people win. If trans people win, immigrants win. Like, it's our liberation is interconnected. And I think that what what is so interesting about labor unions and, and this is that that is an, an area, a common ground where we all coalesce. And just something I would say, you know, to anyone who's listening, who might be like, labor unions and the ACLU, what do they have in common? Um, I think it's pretty clear, but I think it's also important to perhaps be explicit as well about that. As we wrap up here, Kim, I'm curious what your hopes are for the future of, of the labor movement. Wow. If we don't make it to the revolution in my lifetime, uh, I will still take hope and take heart in the amount of progress that's being made by the younger generation and my generation and the older generation, by everyone who has refused to give up, who has refused to be told that they're not worth it, and refused to accept the idea that they don't have any power. I think we're in such an incredible moment with so much potential and so much energy, and so much hope. And even if union leadership in some ways, in some places, falters, I still believe in the rank and file. I think you cannot put this type of lightning back in a bottle, especially with younger people. Like, I'm 35. Mm-hmm. I still feel like I'm pretty young. I'm pretty young in labor terms. You're but young. like in, in the general scheme of things, I'm washed. But, like, people <laughs> 10 years younger than me... <laughs> are doing incredible things. And I think that's how it's gonna keep going. And right now we're at this moment where we have so much to build on, so much historical and institutional knowledge and so many elders still left with us and so many young people prepared to really just get in there and fight. I really have so much hope 
And I just know that we're going to get there eventually. I just hope we get a little closer while I'm still here to be able to get out in the front lines too. Mm, I love that. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been so wonderful to speak with you and, and learn from you. And your book is fabulous. So everyone should go out and buy it. Uh, that's Fight Like Hell. So thank you so much for, for coming on and for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Julian Silva-Forbes is our intern.